This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Decades of good works and social consciousness fundraising weren't enough to dissuade a federal judge from ordering former TPG Capital executive Bill McGlashan to prison for three months for paying $50,000 to fix his son's college test scores. Joining me is Patricia Hurtado, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. Pat, tell us about Bill McGlashan. Well, he's a hotshot investor. He used to work with TPG as an executive, and he co-founded what was called the RISE Fund, which was like socially conscious investing in all kinds of programs, do-gooder programs. And he co-founded it with Jeff Skoll, the eBay billionaire and social activist and rock star Bono. And he was well-known in the financial world as doing good for fundraising, including getting dairy farmers in India to help them get their milk to market in a better way, or funding a program in Zambia to deliver medicine via drones. So it's the kind of socially conscious investing that he was well known for. But a few years ago, he got arrested as one of the more than 30 parents caught up in this college cheating scandal. And he was accused of two different scams with the mastermind. He apparently allegedly had hired uh, Rick Singer, the college advisor who was corrupt, to fix his son's ACT college test scores in one part of it. And the government alleged there was a second part where he had talked and discussed with Singer paying a bribe of like $200,000 to get his son into USC as a purported football recruit when his son's high school didn't even have a football team. So now he made a plea deal with the prosecution so that he wouldn't have to go to trial. Tell us what his eldest son wrote in a letter to the judge before his father's sentencing. His son, George McGlashan, who was a high school senior at the time, wrote a heartfelt letter to the court basically talking about that his father had been swept up in what he called, quote-unquote, parental insanity. And he said that as he watched his father get more and more stressed out about college, working with Singer, and he became compulsive and started monitoring everything he did and talking to him about going to the right colleges, everything in life. And George said that he was not stressed out at all, which probably made his father even more so, which any parent of any teenager applying to college will probably sympathize with. But George says that this was totally unwarranted and his father just basically lost it in the pressures of trying to get his eldest son into the right school. But prosecutors told the judge that McGlashan had fully embraced the fraud And that he had led a double life. Yeah, and that was a really interesting thing because his friends all expressed shock that this had even happened and he'd been ensnared. And the prosecutor, Justin O'Connell, said, you know, here he is doing work as a co-founder of a social impact fund who's devoting his life to addressing inequalities through investment. And he, quote, sought to bring a positive change by leveling the playing field. But privately, he said, when no one was looking, he did the exact opposite, using his wealth and privilege to, quote, slant that playing field in favor of his son by gaming the system. And what did McGlashan tell the judge when he had a chance to address him? It was actually one of the more dramatic allocutions I've heard from one of these parents. And it was interesting to hear from him because he actually adopted what the prosecutor said of his leading a dual life. 
he said that what he did was in terrible conflict for the way he'd actually lived his life. And he said, I'm ready to pay the price of going to prison and that this experience has affected him profoundly and humbled him. His heartfelt emotional contrition was really unusual for some of the parents who basically say a very formulaic kind of statement, I'm sorry this ever happened. I mean, this was one of the most emotional statements I've heard from a parent. And Judge Nathaniel Gorton said, you'll serve at least some time in jail to demonstrate that even the rich and famous cannot avoid the rule of law. But he also said he was dumbfounded and appalled by the parents' crimes. The judge was actually pointing out he still doesn't understand a scandal. Like, what in the world are these parents thinking? He said, you're undoubtedly an intelligent, hardworking businessman who's devoted a significant amount of time and money and resources to doing social good. And yet you're in front of me and I'm going to have to send you because you've displayed an incredible lack of integrity. Explain this. His plea deal includes a provision that he can still challenge the government's theory that the test scores are property. Explain that. Yeah, it's um, it's under the law of a fraud, whether who's the victim here, you know, is the testing service the victim, is the school a victim, is is the testing service, the scores that you get, if you get them fixed, the government's theory is that um, this was property of the testing service, and that this purloined or fabricated property was hypothetically stolen in their theory of this case. And he heavily contested it. He's got quite a team of of defense lawyers, and they really assailed the government's, the strength of the government's case, because this is like the first time they've actually tested this theory, this kind of new theory of can you own test scores and who owns them? Is it the student who owns them? Is it the testing agency that owns them? And, you know, who's defrauded here as a victim? So he's pursuing that. So if later on down the road, after this case shakes out and whatever happens to the other parents, he's going to still appeal that aspect. And he gets to basically, if the appeals court says this is not a fraud and this is the, the testing companies were not defrauded, there was nothing, there was no theft of that, then they, um, he gets to withdraw that part of his guilty plea. The first actual trial in the college admission scandal will take place in September in Boston, where eight parents are going to go on trial. That seems like a lot of defendants, especially where their cases have to be dissimilar in some ways. That's also been a huge bone of contention between the parents and the prosecutors because they've been doing this challenge. It's called the spoke in the hub theory. And basically what the government did here is they made a plea deal with Rick Singer, the mastermind of the case, and he gave up all the parents. The government argues that the parents are all co-conspirators with each other, like they're conspiring with Rick, but also co-conspirators of each other parents argue, I don't know who these other parents are. I only knew Rook Singer. So how can I be co-conspirator with someone I never met? So that's also going to be fiercely contested at the appellate level. I mean, imagine the kind of prejudicial spillover that would be on one parent who maybe just did one phone call versus another parent that may have had more machinations or more alleged meetings with Singer and more wiretaps. 
You've covered a lot of trials. I've covered a lot of trials. Have you ever seen a trial with eight defendants? I used to cover in the good old days mafia trials <laughs> okay. where there would be like 15 defendants. But those are really, really rare. And they are very unwieldy. And under COVID protocol, it kind of boggles the mind how you're going to fit eight people with their various defense lawyers in a courtroom. It's going to be a challenge. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Patricia Hurtado. Over the last 10 years, the number of lawyers practicing over the age of 65 has increased more than 50 percent. Meanwhile, more than one in nine people over 65 are diagnosed with Alzheimer's, the most common type of dementia. So what are the guidelines when someone thinks a colleague of theirs is suffering from cognitive decline? Joining me is Holly Barker, senior legal reporter at Bloomberg Law. Start with the the numbers. How many lawyers over the age of 65 are still practicing? In 2020, there were 161,000 attorneys over the age of 65, and that's out of 1.2 million, roughly, attorneys nationally. So that's about 13.6% of lawyers in active practice. And the number was actually a little bit higher in 2019, uh, but overall, uh, it's been substantially increasing for decades, uh, 50% higher than it was in, in 2011, for example. And what about the numbers of people over the age of 65 with Alzheimer's? One in nine people over the age of 65 uh, are experiencing Alzheimer's type dementia, have actually been diagnosed. uh, And the number accelerates a great deal uh, as people age. So by the time you're 80, I believe that it's uh, 34.6% of people age 85 and over. Sometimes people don't recognize that they're suffering from cognitive decline or they're in denial about it. Is it more noticeable when it's a practicing lawyer? Uh, Not necessarily. It depends in part on on to what extent uh, an attorney is sort of operating as an island. Even in large organizations, uh, attorneys are sort of can be responsible for their own practices, and and it might not be... A colleague, it could, you know, like another attorney, but it could be uh, an assistant or somebody in the tech department who notices that a lawyer keeps forgetting their password. A lot of of what attorneys do, they've been doing for years, and it's and it's rehearsed, and you know they can recite the elements of a crime in their sleep, but it's their it's sort of their executive functioning that goes first. So it could be missed appointments, missed deadlines, an inability to sort of apply the substantive law that they know well to a new set of facts. You know, part of sort of all of those years of professional training enables attorneys to tap into cognitive reserves, essentially. And they can sort of pivot and deflect if, if they're unable to answer a question or if they're feeling confused. Some of the people you spoke to said that part of the self-denial in the early stages of dementia has to do with how closely their identities are connected to their career and their professional lives. And Tish Vincent, who is chair of the American Bar Association Commission on Lawyer Assistance Program, said they'll cling to their professional identities until their dying breath. Tell us about that aspect of it. 
I think for most practicing attorneys, it's such an all-encompassing career choice, and they're so accustomed to being able to help people out of life's sort of most challenging circumstances. It's not just what they do for a living, it's who they are. And I think that sort of relinquishing that sort of feels like relinquishing a part of yourself. Are disciplinary bodies handling a lot of cases of lawyers with dementia whose actions hurt their clients? So it's it's a relatively small fraction of the overall issues that they deal with based on, on the information available. But the information available is fairly limited, in part because a lot of state bar programs have implemented sort of diversionary programs where if they get a referral about misconduct and they suspect that it, that it is connected to cognitive decline, they'll try to redirect the attorney to a lawyer assistance program to the extent that their lawyer assistance programs have those resources. And they'll also encourage them to retire voluntarily so that they can, they can retire with dignity and they don't have to have their last act be a disciplinary action. A lot of these people have otherwise careers. You write that deciding to intervene about a colleague or a boss, perhaps, can be difficult and heartbreaking. Can it also be risky? It can be risky if, for example, you're in a small firm and, and that attorney is, is the breadwinner or the, the managing partner. Um, to the extent that they're the brand for your for your firm or you rely on them to, to generate business and the work that you do, ending their career, uh, if that's the outcome, could throw you into a lurch. You spoke to someone who said that it's easier to report someone for drugs or alcohol abuse than it is for dementia. So lawyer assistance programs were initially founded with a, with a focus on substance abuse issues. In 2010, only, I think, around 33 states had any resources, their lawyer assistance programs, that is, for cognitive decline. And that that increased to about 43 in 2014. But even then, it depends in part uh, on what resources there are in their community. So if you're in a rural community, it might be a lot more difficult to get a neuropsychological evaluation. The other thing is that neuropsychological evaluations are expensive. They can cost a couple of thousand dollars. And lawyer assistance programs generally, you know, they have finite resources, so there's only so much they can do. And relative to substance abuse, cognitive decline is just, it represents a, a smaller fraction of what they do. So they're naturally going to be sort of less adept. But not all, but many programs are much more sophisticated now than they used to be. For example, in Illinois, Diana Uchiyama, who's been the executive director since 2018, she is both a forensic psychologist and an attorney. And she, I think, is laser focused on this issue. And because of her skill set, really especially adept at ferreting out the issue and she's sensitive to it. So the resources have improved substantially, but I think there's a lot of work across the country to be done. Does a lawyer have a duty to report or intervene if he or she suspects another lawyer is impaired? In most states, yes. 
and there there are different sort of mechanisms for doing that. If you suspect that a lawyer is no longer capable of providing competent practice, in most states, yes, there is a duty to report your colleagues, but that's not uniformly true. The model rule is ABA model rule 8.3, and California, for example, has affirmatively not uh, adopted that. And that's not to say that there's anything that other than maintaining client confidentiality that would preclude colleagues from reporting it in California, but there isn't an affirmative obligation to. There's no way to tell how many lawyers are practicing, actually practicing with who have dementia. Are lawyers assistance programs seeing an increase in outreach? Uh, From what I understand, Diana Uchiyama said that, yes, she has seen uh, an uptick in referrals related to cognitive decline especially in recent months as people emerge from the pandemic, you know, isolation and disruption in routines can sort of exacerbate early stages of dementia or the signs of early stages of dementia. And, you know, when as people sort of emerge, their colleagues are seeing them for the first time and, and the decline, I think, is more pronounced. So perhaps it's easier to recognize for that reason. What's the best advice for someone who suspects that a colleague is suffering from dementia, a legal colleague? I think it depends on on the resources you have uh, available to you and sort of the LAP program in your state. But I think one of the key, the key things to think about is not to approach the person uh, by saying, I think you have dementia. I think colleagues ought to focus on the concrete observations that they have. If the if their colleague has been less responsive or they're not showing up for calls or they're failing to communicate significant developments to clients, sort of focusing on on sort of what concrete errors they're identifying because, you know, lawyers by and large aren't, aren't trained uh, to identify it. And, and it might not be irreversible dementia. Depression can cause people, you know, memory loss and sleep deprivation can cause memory loss and their the manifestation of the symptoms could ultimately be related to something else. So I, I think it's important to sort of not make that assumption, but to really focus on the conduct and to the extent that you can enlist family members and colleagues to sort of help intervene, it, it really helps. And I think that's a lot of what lawyer assistance programs do is they will, you know, try to assemble a group uh, of people, trusted colleagues, family members, who can encourage the person to, if necessary, undergo uh, a formal evaluation so they can really ferret out the issue. I know that some large law firms used to have retirement ages. I don't know if they do anymore, but do larger law firms have a better handle on lawyers who are perhaps in cognitive decline? My sense is that they do, in part because the sort of the referrals that you do see and the disciplinary proceedings that you do see um, tend to skew towards solo practitioners and, and, and smaller organizations, which, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, large firms, you're right, they used to have a mandatory retirement agents. Most of them, to my understanding, don't anymore, but they do have more scaffolding in place. Like, they might have anonymous reporting systems that colleagues can use. And there's, you know, sort of more support. There are more people to help carry the weight and to, to intervene quickly. 
you wrote extensively about Bethany McLean and, and what she went through. Just tell me a little bit about her story. So Bethany McQueen, this was her first legal job uh, right after she graduated. Uh, she had been biding her time at a whirly ball booking children's birthday parties in Chicago because it was right after uh, the financial crisis uh, and, and jobs were scarce. She interviewed with Robert Fischel, uh, and and he was older, but he had goals of expanding his practice. He was charming. He was enthusiastic. Uh, he was he was charismatic, um, and she had no reason uh, initially to think that that anything was wrong. Uh, but once she joined this practice and she started going through his client files, uh, they were in total disarray. He was missing irretrievable deadlines. He was failing to communicate significant developments to clients, and uh, you know she was receiving. Uh, communications from opposing counsel uh, that that really suggested that that something was terribly wrong. Uh, so she started by reaching out to Illinois Black Program, uh, and she just she wasn't able to get uh, the guidance that she needed uh, specific to sort of her to dementia related concerns. Uh, they had robust resources with respect to substance abuse. But from her perspective, they they seem to, to lack any protocol for for what she should do under in these specific circumstances. So she eventually started calling uh, the Illinois Disciplinary Commission's hotline, ethics hotline, uh, you know, which can provide direction uh, when you have ethics questions. But they generally don't take action until you file a formal complaint. And it's, and it's something that she was really trying to avoid uh, because she, she knew the implica- what the implications would be for, for his legacy. But that's, that's ultimately what she was forced to do. Um, you know, when she would try to discuss client matters and upcoming deadlines and missed deadlines, uh, he, was, he was aloof, she said. So... Um, it was, it was a last resort, you know, unfortunately, you know, she wasn't able to find a better way to intervene at the time. You told me you got the idea to do this story about dementia and lawyers because of what you learned about the lawyer, Thomas Girardi. Tell us about that. He's in his eighties. He is a nationally known plaintiff's attorney. He was the attorney that, that was, you know, featured in Aaron Brockovich and he, there was a complaint filed in, in the Northern District of Illinois, basically alleging that that he had uh, embezzled two million dollars from clients uh, who were family members of individuals who died in, in the Lion Air crash in 2018. And it was a few weeks later, maybe a month later, uh, he was also in bankruptcy proceedings, where his representative basically said. He's suffering from dementia, and, and he's he's really not capable of, of representing himself. And uh, there's since been a conservator appointed for him, at least for, for some limited responsibilities in managing his account. But it got me thinking, if this is true, how often does it happen? And what are, what are our colleagues' obligations to intervene? And would you be able to recognize it if you saw it? So that's sort of... What got me thinking about the issue generally, 
this is just sort of how it unfolded. When I started digging, uh, it became really clear to me, sort of uniformly everyone I talked to said, no, this, this is a real problem. And yes, it is really difficult to identify. And, you know, there is a lot of denial around the issue. And it's a growing one given the aging bar. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Holly. That's Holly Barker, senior legal reporter for Bloomberg Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio. 